From the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, this is Great Talks at the APS, a podcast where we ask scholars about some of the most thought-provoking talks given at the society. Since 1743, the APS has hosted the greatest minds from around the world to talk about cutting-edge research, new discoveries, and timeless issues. Listen in every month for a new episode. And now here's your host, Dr. Patrick Spiro. Welcome to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. I'm your host, Patrick Spiro, librarian here at the American Philosophical Society. And on this episode, we'll talk to Doug Massey, professor of sociology at Princeton University and an APS member. Dr. Massey gave two talks at APS meetings, one in 2006 and another in 2015 on the US-Mexican border and immigration politics. On this episode, we'll talk about the history of America's southern border and border policy today. Well, thanks for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be here. I wanted to start with um, a, a, a quote, something that you said in 2015. It is not just a border, but the border. It is the symbol of everything that's threatening to the United States. If there's a threat to the United States, the way a politician or a public figure demonstrates their sincerity about dealing with that threat is they call for more border enforcement. I was wondering if you could talk more about what you mean uh, about the southern border being the border. Well. It's become the all-purpose uh, symbol for protecting America. So whatever the threat is, the answer is more border enforcement. Not in the Canadian border, not in our sea coasts, but the Mexican border. Uh, so we've dramatically militarized the border over the past several decades. Uh, I think back in around uh, 1985, there were around 2,000 Border Patrol officers and $250 million budget, and now it's 20,000 officers and about $4 billion budget. Uh, and actually, there are fewer people now attempting to cross than there were way back in 1985. And so we've really militarized the border in, in a way that's completely disconnected from the underlying traffic. In fact, the number of apprehensions at the border today are really at all-time lows. Uh, you would not know it from the heated rhetoric that's being thrown around, but actually the number of apprehensions is at very low levels that we haven't seen since the early 1970s. Well, and the, the history is something I want to ask you about, because in your 2015 talk, you gave a fantastic history of the southern border and its, uh, it, it, oh, uh, the public's awareness of it in their imagination, in their consciousness, in the political rhetoric over time, going all the way back to the 19th century. I was wondering if you could share with us some of this history. Well, uh, it, it all goes back to the 18th century in the 19th century uh, as the European colonial powers were vying for territory in the Americas. And of course, Spain um, uh, controlled the province of New Spain, the colony of New Spain, which is Mexico, which included the southwestern United States. Uh, and as part of a nation building project, uh, 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 they wanted to bring in more white settlers. A lot of this was all about racial nation building. And so uh, they wanted to attract in white settlers uh, in, into the northernmost province of Texas. And so they gave land grants and generous terms to people who came in mostly from the south. And they brought their slaves. And uh, the Mexican uh, government uh, in its uh, constitution, when it gained independence, uh, had a pro prohibition against slavery. And in the 1830s and 40s, they began to start enforcing that prohibition against slavery. And that's what sparked the Texans' revolt. So it's not like you see in the John Wayne movie about the Alamo, where it's liberty and justice. Republic. 
I like the sound of the word. It means people can live free, talk free, go or come, buy or sell, be drunk or sober, however they choose. Some words give you a feeling. Republic is one of those words that makes me tighten the throat. It's about protecting their slaveholding and keeping uh, Texas a slaveholding society. So defining that border was all about race. The history of this border is rife with irony. The intentions of policies have unintended consequences throughout the history of the southern border. So I was wondering if you could share with us um, some of these ironies. Um, and the one that uh, was really quite new to me was in 1907, the gentleman's agreement with Japan. So an agreement with Japan about immigration had profound effects on our relationship with Mexico. Well, throughout the development of the West in the early, in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, uh, there was a lot of labor needs. And the labor needs were met first by the Chinese, and they were banned in the 1880s. And then the Japanese replaced the Chinese and were the primary workers in the agricultural workforce in California and the Texas Valley. And, um, and were important in the food processing and railroad industries as well. Uh, and then in 1907, the US Congress was fixing to ban uh, immigration from Japan like they banned it from China. But Japan at this time was a rising industrial power seeking to compete on a global stage. And they didn't want to have the ignominious distinction of being banned from the United States. So they reached a gentleman's agreement with US authorities, whereby we agreed not to ban them from coming in, in return for which they promised not to let any Japanese come here. And this created immediate labor shortages throughout the Southwest that, uh, that were uh, gravely exacerbated once World War I broke out in 1914. And, uh, and when the US entered the war in 1917, uh, the US uh, government actually set up uh, uh, his, one of its first labor recruitment programs for Mexico. So back in 1907, we really see the start of a large scale Mexican migration, starting with private recruitment, uh, working on the railroads, working in the farms, working in the mines in the Southwest. And then when the uh, war gets going, uh, the US uh, sets up its own labor recruitment program under government auspices. And then uh, after the war in 1920, we start in the restrictive immigration period, and uh, uh, the 1921 and 1924 Immigration Acts really attempt to cut off migration from Southern and Eastern Europe during the Roaring Twenties, a boom. And so that labor deficit was met with more Mexicans. And um, historians talk about the 1920s as being the flood tide of Mexican migration to the United States. As a rate of the population, the rates were actually higher than they were in the 1980s and 1990s here. Uh, Mexico was undergoing a revolution, uh, a reordering of society. Uh, so there was a lot of unmet needs in, in the population. And there was unmet demand on the US side. And they came together. And there was a mass movement of Mexicans in the United States throughout the 1920s. Uh, Mexican uh, populations and communities formed in, uh, in cities all over the Midwest and far west. Uh, and then that all came to an end in 1929 with the Depression. And from 1929 to 1935, we deported about 450,000 Mexicans from the United States, including many of their US-born citizen kids. And all this was without due process. Well, 450,000 deportation, that is a massive effort uh, on the federal government's part. I mean, is there anything comparable to that? It's worse now. <laughs> well, at the time, though, I mean, was that, that at the must time? Been... No, this, it was the largest single deportation uh, program that had ever been launched. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people were um, rounded up, 
sent to the rail yards, put on boxcars, sent back to the Mexican border where they're unceremoniously dumped across. And uh, many U.S.-born kids, citizen kids, were uh, dumped across with their parents. Uh, uh, and of course now, uh, during the Obama administration, we got up to 450,000 deportations per year. And we're getting back into that territory now under the early part of the Trump administration where you're getting 350 to 400,000 deportations per year. So essentially we've institutionalized the deportation uh, program of the 1930s and made it an annual annual basis. But one of the other ironies has to do with if, you know, so much of the history is marked by injustice is if I read you correctly, in 1965, the federal government uh, enacted reforms on immigration that was meant to create fairer policies on immigration yeah. that, once again, the unintended consequences was, and I'll let you take it over. <laughs> well, the thing one has to understand about uh, the way Congress makes immigration policy is they don't make policy by thinking about immigration, what it is, what they want to accomplish with it, uh, and how they might use it to our, our benefit or not. Uh, it, it's more uh, about domestic politics, and they become symbols. And immigrants become symbols in larger domestic uh, issues and processes and our and movements. And the '60s, it was the height of the civil rights movement. So the '64 Civil Rights Act had passed, the '65 Voting Rights Act, and uh, the '68 Fair Housing Act was coming up. And in this context, an overhaul of immigration law was seen as a civil rights reform, not an immigration reform. And so um, they, by, by the, uh, the 1960s, who was in charge of Congress? Peter Rodino, who's the son of Italian immigrants, Dan Rostenkowski, the son of Polish immigrants. And they were fairly aggravated about the way their parents and grandparents had been treated. And so they were all for getting rid of those uh, national origins quotas that discriminated against their, their relatives. And so they scrapped the national origin system, scrapped the Asian ban, scrapped the ban on immigration from Africa and the Middle East. And for outside of the Americas, outside of the Western Hemisphere, created a new system where every country got 20,000 visas per year, uh, allocated according to labor market needs and uh, family ties to people already living in the U.S., and some refugees. It was the Cold War, after all. Uh, and in the Western Hemisphere, which had never had any quotas, no numerical limitations in the Western Hemisphere prior to 1965, they began a process of incorporating into a the global system of quoted immigration. And so they phased in a first quota of, of 120,000 total visas uh, that took effect in for the Western Hemisphere in 1968. And then by 1976, they folded uh, the Western Hemisphere into the single worldwide system where there are 290,000 visas per for the entire world and 20,000 visas per country. And in the late 1950s, Mexico was sending about half a million people into the United States every year. About 450,000 were coming in every year through something called the Bracero Program, which was a temporary worker program, an agricultural program that we started after the, um, uh, the U.S. entered the Second World War. So we deported everybody during the 1930s. And then when we needed them again in 1940, we went back to Mexico and said, you were real sorry about that deportation campaign. We need the workers now. Can we have a binational program? All such farm jobs, which are tough, dirty, or unpleasant, are generally referred to as stoop labor. Understandably then, this is the only area in which the American farm labor supply falls short and is supplemented by Mexican citizens. 
sometimes called nationals or Mexican nationals. But the term most commonly used is braceros. In Spanish, this means a man who works with his arms and hands. That was set up in, in the height of the 1950s. It was 450,000 entries per year. And permanent resident entries, which were unlimited numerically, were running at about 50,000 per year. And so suddenly Congress changed for very laudable reasons to get rid of racism. They got rid of um, the quotas, the old restrictive quotas, and they created a single worldwide system that yeah, tried to distribute them fairly. And they got rid of uh, the Bracero program at the end of 1964 because they saw it as exploitive, some, on, a, on a par with uh, southern sharecropping. And, uh, but they didn't think about what was going to happen to this half a million person flow into the country every year. They'd been going on for 22 years, 1942 uh, uh, to 1964. How did Mexico and Mexicans see the Bracero program? Did they see it comparable to sharecropping or did... They see it differently. They they wanted it reformed. They didn't want it eliminated, and they wanted more more rights and and better conditions in the U.S. And then the program was canceled over um, vociferous protests by the Mexican government because it it was a, a big source of income for a lot of Mexicans in rural areas. And how much of this migration is um, non permanent in the sense that it's, it's overwhelmingly circular. So the Braceros were almost by definition circular migrants. They would go on short-term visas of nine to 12 months and sometimes overstay, but usually they would be very seasonal work. They'd go up for the harvest and then come back in the winter, spend the Christmas holidays and Three Kings Day in Mexico, and then start drifting back in March. When the construction season picks up, the agricultural season starts to pick up and peak in, in, uh, uh, in population would peak in July and August and then shrink again in the fall. And, and that was a very, it was an annual cycle. And um, at that point, people, uh, the employers, they wanted, they, if they found a reliable worker, they wanted access to them on an ongoing basis without having to bother with a temporary work visa uh, through the Bracero program. So they would sponsor them for permanent resident visas. And the migrants would actually use these as a permanent guest worker programs. So they, they just rotate back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on an annual basis. And the overwhelming majority of the moves, uh, both of permanent, ostensibly permanent residents and, of course, the Braceros, overwhelming majority were circular. And there was very little net increase uh, uh, over time. Okay, so um, to get us back to 1965 then, uh, Congress makes this decision to now uh, cap the number of uh, visas at 20,000, while uh, Mexico is sending 450 to 500,000 a year uh, in a circular pattern to the United States. And then they cancel a few years later the Bracero program. Yeah. What happens next? Well, um, the labor market conditions hadn't changed. The conditions of supply and demand hadn't changed. And moreover, after 22 years of continuous migration, you had millions of Mexican migrants establishing contacts with U.S. employers. And so the, the flows simply reestablished themselves under undocumented auspices. And that's the beginning of undocumented migration. So it created something that was legal and accepted and actually uh, vital to both the United States and Mexico, made all of that illegal. It also made it visible. So the Bracero program was uh, out of sight, out of mind. They would, they would be bust right to the farms or right to the work sites. And, 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 and then they would be gone in the winter by Christmas. Uh, and very few people were settling. Uh, and this circular, regular circular migration of half a million people per year was just kind of 
not an issue. And then suddenly they become visible because when they start crossing uh, without documents, without authorization, they start getting apprehended. And as the apprehensions rise, this starts a new narrative in the American media about the alien invasion from the South. Uh, and it really takes uh, hold in the mid-1970s when um, Leonard F. Chapman becomes uh, uh, director of the Immigration and Naturalization Service and publish, publishes an article in uh, Reader's Digest, which back then was like the middle-class go-to source. And uh, it was called uh, uh, 20 Million Illegal Migrants, Time to Call a Halt and alleged there were 20 million migrants and we were being swamped and, uh, and alleged that they had hard information about this, but none has ever turned up. And um, according to the best demographic estimates that have been done, uh, between 1965 and 1985, the illegal population of the U.S. grew from about zero to about three million not 20 million and it was and and according to the estimates that I've done with the data that I've been collecting for many years in Mexico between 1965 and 1985 um, uh, about 85% of undocumented entries were offset by departures so you had a very small net increase every year and the population grew very slowly uh, and so it it was Basically, what had, not much had changed. We had the same migrants going to the same employers in the same states, doing the same things, only now they were doing it without authorization. And they were framed as illegal aliens, illegal migrants, and if they're illegal, by definition, they're lawbreakers and criminals. And it just starts this whole demonization of immigrants and uh, from, the, from south of the border. And, uh, it, and then when Reagan comes into... Uh, office in the 1980s. It gets wound up in the Cold War, especially after refugees from Central America start flooding out after our intervention there. Uh, and uh, ever since then, every time there's a, uh, some kind of threat to the United States, the answer becomes more border enforcement. So it was more border enforcement because of the communist threat from the South. All the Sandinistas were going to infiltrate. And if you want to get a good sense for the zeitgeist of the time, rent a movie called Red Dawn, which is, uh, was a classic. I think it came out in 1985, where the US is invaded by Spanish-speaking troops commanded by Russian officers. <laughs> came up illegal from Mexico, Cubans mostly. They opened up the door down here. The whole Cuban and Nicaraguan armies come walking right through, roll right up here through the Great Plains. And actually, in the, in, it's in the next year that the next major piece of uh, yeah. reform legislation is passed. President Reagan did sign the sweeping new Immigration Reform Act today. He said it protects the sacred possession of American citizenship. Millions of illegal aliens will be eligible for amnesty and will be able to apply for legal residency status, no questions asked. It's, it's reform, but it, it's also the beginning of the militarization of the border. So it, it authorized the legalization of about two to three million uh, farm workers, a special program. That was the bone they threw to the growers to get them on board and support it. And for long-term residents, five years or more in the U.S. And um, they legalized about two to three million, close to three million people. And that put created an immediate drop in the size of the population because you've transferred them from illegal status to legal status. And so in, 2000, in 1988, the population was down to around 2 million total. But then they started militarizing the border. They criminalized the hiring of undocumented migrants for the first time. 
uh, uh, the federal government was given a power to call immigration emergencies and militarize the border. So uh, actually, I want to ask you about both of those, which is uh, criminalizing. So what was it before this moment? Before it was illegal. Um, and, it, and we have to remember, when we talk about undocumented migration or unauthorized migration, it's a civil violation. It's not a criminal violation. But it was uh, uh, unlawful to be president of the United States without authorization. And, to, and um, uh, it, it, employers were protected by a piece of uh, immigration law known as the Texas Proviso. So uh, the law said that uh, assisting or harboring undoc uh, illegal migrants, unauthorized migrants, will be unlawful, comma, provided that employment does not constitute harboring or assisting. So they were off the hook. That was repealed in 1986, and then sanctions were employed against employers in theory, but it had um, major loopholes. All the employer had to do was fill out something called an I-9 form, which collects information and says they saw a piece of identification that confirms the right to work and created a booming business in fraudulent documents, um, but it really didn't change much. Uh, and the, the process basically continued. Um, but uh, the drumbeat, it never, the, the, the Latino threat narrative that got going uh, over the trope of illegality never really went away. And it's come back, uh, it comes back uh, uh, whenever we experience some kind of external threat or um, economic turmoil. But it's also here along this border that transnational gangs like MS-13 and international cartels flood our country with drugs and leave death and violence in their wake. And it is here that criminal aliens and the coyotes and the document forgers seek to overthrow our lawful system of immigration. The current anti-immigrant reaction is the latest in the long historical series going back to um, Germans in the time of Ben Franklin. Uh, uh, and the, the formula for an anti-immigrant nativist reaction uh, is rapid demographic change because of immigration combined with economic and rising economic insecurity. Yeah, and actually that uh, I think feeds into the, the next chain in this history that I wanted to, uh, uh, history of ironies that I wanted to talk about, and that's um, NAFTA, which has a tremendous amount of economic change for uh, North America writ large. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about, in, in, particularly in your 2006 talk, you talk about the ironies of NAFTA, that it is to integrate all but one market, and that that creates the largest problem of all. Yeah, well, that's really the fundamental contradiction in economic globalization and throughout the world, is that we want to we like this integrated global economy where we can have cross-border movements of goods and consumer goods, uh, products, uh, commodities, uh, information, services, and so on. And we don't mind um, some high ed highly educated people working, but we don't need a labor movement. And that's a fundamental contradiction because you can't integrate a market economy and only integrate, integrate all markets except one. And this contradiction was writ large in the case of NAFTA, which uh, took effect on July, January 1st, 1994. So this was coincided with a massive buildup of the border. So um, at the same time, we're integrating North American markets with Canada and Mexico. We're militarizing the border with our second largest trading partner. Uh, but what the real irony is that they were militarizing the border 
with the ostensible purpose of stopping undocumented migration. But it didn't stop undocumented migration. It stopped the return migration. Uh, people had been migrating for decades. They had established contacts. They knew where to go. Uh, employers wanted them. Uh, and so uh, they, mig they continued migrating without authorization, and it was circular. But then you drive up the costs and risks of border crossing, and migrants, being reasonable people, minimize border crossing. And they do this not by staying in Mexico and foregoing the wages they know they can get. They do it by just extending their stay in the United States longer and longer and longer. And the longer they stay here, the, the more uh, demand from spouses and children for reunification. So they arrange for them to come up. And this is the origin of what are called the today's dreamers. Um, they come up as children. And the ones who aren't married um, get married up here. And when the families get married or reunite, they do what people in their 20s do. They have kids. And um, so that creates uh, a very complicated situation where you got mixed status families. And many, uh, many, many uh, American citizen kids are being raised by undocumented parents. And many of them have been relocated to Mexico with their deported parents in, 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 in a very tragic sort of way. And others, the parents are deported and the kids stay with relatives or friends here because they're Americans and you know there's no place for them really to go back to in Mexico. And you also talked about the increased risks that have happened because of NAFTA. And I know you've done some studies on this. Can you talk about what has changed for people wishing to cross the border? The border starts militarizing in 1986 with Immigration Reform and Control Act. And not naturally they target the enforcement resources to where the crossings are. And the two busiest crossing points are El Paso and San Diego. And so the net effect of the, um, really the militarization of these two sectors was they pushed the flows away from those sectors through the Sonoran Desert into Arizona. Prior to the 1990s, Arizona had been a backwater, tiny numbers of people crossing. And then it became the principal, principal place of water crossing. And this only reinforced the invasion narrative because, again, it made the migrants more visible. You know, 5,000 migrants arriving every week and going from Tijuana to San Diego don't make a big impression. They're million-people million cities, you know, heavily Mexican. Uh, but in Douglas, Arizona, which is like 25 or 30,000 people, open ranch land, uh, it becomes a new story. And there's this new invasion that's happening. But it's really only they've changed the place where they're crossing the border. And, of course, um, crossing in an urban area is not that dangerous. You're going from Tijuana to San Diego, from Juarez to El Paso, uh, and you're not going to die of thirst, you're not going to die of sunstroke. I mean, it's not pleasant. There's some injuries, but it's really not life-threatening. Uh, but when you're crossing the Sonoran Desert in high altitudes, and desert, high desert, where it's boiling heat during the day, frigid cold at night, and the scarcity of water, it's really dangerous. And so the death toll immediately goes up. And the number of deaths uh, along the, the Mexico-U.S. border has dramatically increased. And it's continued to stay high, even though the number of attempted crossings is way, way down. So the rate of death has actually continued to go up. You, you talked about the, the invasion uh, narrative. And earlier you mentioned the Latino threat narrative. Could you talk a little bit more about what that means? Well, uh, 
the Latinos were seen as a threat to the well-being of the United States. They're illegal, so they're criminals and they're lawbreakers. And uh, they are portrayed as threatening the United States in, in a variety of different ways. Um, first, they take jobs away from Americans. And at the same time, they use welfare and take social services away from Americans. So they're simultaneously workers and dependents, which is a little confusing, but never underestimate the ability of human beings to hold two mutually exclusive ideas in their head at the same time. Uh, so whenever the economy goes south, those things really come out. And, and to be honest, there is a real serious transfer problem in that the costs of immigration are all born locally. And the tax revenues don't necessarily flow to where the services are used. Tax revenues tend to accrue at the national level. And it would be easy to solve, and just put it in a, a percentage form born into the federal revenue sharing formula. So places that are on behalf of the country, keeping immigrants healthy and educated and integrating them into society, get more money. But that's not how it's ever been framed. And then whenever uh, another crisis hit, so when it was the Sandinistas and the communists, then it was communist infiltration and it was our weak underbelly. Uh, and then when the war on terror began, then it became uh, a, a terrorist threat. So to defend ourselves against Al-Qaeda, we militarized the border with Mexico and we ramp up deportations of Latinos. Uh, and uh, if you look at who flew the planes on 9-11, there weren't any Latinos. And they came from Canada, not Mexico, right? They came from Canada, or they came in through the, the legal system. They had, they had visas. Uh, and there were Saudis and Kuwaitis. Uh, and they're not even on the banned list now. And then when ISIS came along, then it was ISIS. And you may have noticed that uh, when the Ebola epidemic broke out, then there were calls to close the Mexico-US border because of the threat from Ebola. Well, of course, you know, there aren't any flights from West Africa into Mexico. There aren't any African populations in Mexico. African populations are in Canada. And their flights uh, through, from the old British Commonwealth through London into, you know, there's a lot of African immigration into, into Canada. And all the Ebola that got into the United States came in through U.S. ports of entry, nothing from Mexico. So one of the ways that this narrative is used is for political mobilization. Also, one of the things you point out in your talk is the growth of uh, government agencies and the ways that I think you mentioned Leonard Chapman um, that this narrative can be used to marshal or reallocate federal resources to specific places. It's great for um, bureaucratic entrepreneurs who want to gain more resources for their agency and more power. It's great for politicians to mobilize conservative base with fear. Uh, and it's great for pundits. Uh, they make money off of books and the, the TV ratings. You know, Lou Dobbs made a lot of money. Pat Buchanan's made money with his anti-immigrant rants. And, uh, and so they, they start acquiring vested interests with economic interests. And then um, a lot of Americans don't realize that about two-thirds of the immigration detention system is private, profit-making. And so they become lobbyists on behalf of more restrictive immigration laws. And they actually succeed in, in putting in place uh, in, in legislation quotas so that they have to fill a number of beds with immigrants every day in the, in the immigration detention system, or they pay anyway. And so you create this incentive just to, um, to police just for the sake of profit. And um, now it's on steroids under um, Trump. Uh, Obama had actually announced he was phase, going to, planning to phase out the private part of the immigration detention system. And 
the two big corporations, Corrections Corporation of America and GeoCorp, their stock was tanking. And then the day after the election, um, their, their stock rallied. <laughs> and, and they returned to profitability. Uh, but it just shows you that you get this whole set of institutional actors, not just, not just Joe Sixpack out there anymore. You got the Border Patrol Union. You got the ICE unions. You got Corrections Corporation of America. You got um, uh, American Legislative Exchange Council writing model um, anti-immigrant legislation. They're peddling around to different states. And it becomes this um, gigantic industry that is completely disconnected from the underlying realities of immigration. Uh, illegal migration from Mexico ended 10 years ago. It's been negative for 10 years. And the reason it ended was because of the demographic transition in Mexico. So in the 60s, the birth rate was about 6.8 children per woman. And by the year 2000, it's about 2.3. Today, it's about 2.2, which is replacement level. Mexico has become an aging society. So in the 80s, when all these migrants are coming, the average age was about 18 or 19 or 20. What accounts for that drop? Because I noticed that in the paper. Is it uh, contraception, in be better access to... Uh... In, the, in the 1970s, the Mexican government, as part of its development strategy, put money into family planning and made contraceptives widely available. And Mexico's become more of an, a middle-class society, especially in the wake of NAFTA. And Mexican society has changed quite dramatically over the last uh, several decades. Uh, and, um, and women's roles have really changed dramatically. Education levels have risen quite rapidly under a, a successive program put in place by the government. And so now the average age in Mexico is 29. And migration is a highly age-dependent process. So the age curve goes, starts rising like around 16 or 17, peaks around 22 and then starts dropping with increasing rapidity and gets very low after 30. So if you don't start migrating between age, say, 18 and 30, you don't start migrating later. And, um, and now the average age in Mexico is 29. So I want to ask you one more question about the, the rhetoric that surrounds uh, immigration, and that's we are so accustomed to using certain words and phrases to describe immigration, floods, being swamped, all of which kind of evoke these ideas of being overwhelmed, being flooded, yeah. Yeah. which then kind of conf almost implicitly conform or, or, or feed into this Latino threat narrative or wherever right. it's from, whether it was German earlier or Polish or Irish. Or, um, so could you talk about the way that we talk about immigration and how we could possibly change it? Or is this something that we just have to live with because it so, just rolls off our tongue. It's so embedded in our culture. Well, the, when the Latino threat narrative got going, there were two favored metaphors. There was the marine metaphor. It's a, it's a rising tide. It's flooding. We're drowning. It's drowning American society. It's going to inundate, inundate our culture and so on. Um, but over time, especially with the rise of the war on terror and then with the events in Central America in the 80s, the, the metaphors became martial. And these were alien invaders. And they were going to uh, occupy our country and take and then the Pat Buchanan actually wrote a book saying there was a secret plot in Mexico called the Aztlan plot where Mexican elites were sending migrants over so that they could reconquer the southwestern United States. The Mexican government is now openly talking about La Reconquista, not military, but the demographic, the cultural reconquest of the lost lands of the southwest that James K. Polk won for this country. And uh, historically, another metaphor that's been used is disease. Uh, the border gets conflated with Ebola, and Donald Trump is using um, disease language. We're being infested with immigrants. They're, they're vermin. 
they're they have you know they're bringing diseases into the country. They're unhealthy, and it's almost a physical repulsion. And uh, now you know it's, they've always been there, but now it's coming from the very top of the American government, and it's given people immense license to unleash things they'd kept corked up in earlier days. I want to talk a little bit about where we are today, especially in light of where we were in 2006 and even maybe 2015 when you last gave a talk. Um, in 2006, you had this fantastic imaginative proposal for how an approach to solving these issues. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you proposed then? Well, I think I was um, a, a series of proposals that I made to recognize that we're integrating North America and to make provisions for the movement of people within this integrated economy, and not not necessarily an open border, but something beyond what we what we, what we are allowing. So, um, you know, I've been studying my Mexican migration to the United States for 30, 35 years, and. The average Mexican migrant, when they start migrating, their goal is not to stay here. They want to make some money, go back home, reinvest it there, make a couple more trips, buy a house, get settled, and then stay in Mexico. And then by militarizing the border, we made that circulation, that strategy, very difficult and costly. And so it was abandoned. And the great irony is we we're spending three to four billion dollars per year in border enforcement by the 1990s. And we actually ended up doubling the net rate of undocumented population growth because we had a massive policy intervention that had no effect on in-migration but dramatically reduced out-migration back. So net migration equals in-migration minus out-migration. The undocumented population, which had grown from zero to three million between 65 and 85, grew from two million to 12 million between 1988 and 2008. And uh, ironically, all these rabid um, people that are uh, angry about the cultural changes, well, a lot of it's because, because of our policy. policy brought it about. And, and, and once you've created a settled population, it's very difficult to go back to the status quo ante of circulation because now you've got 11 million people with lives here. There's a growing, growing population of U.S.-born citizen kids. Uh, the dreamers, they're basically, in all, for all you know, intents and purposes, they're culturally American kids. Uh, and it just it becomes a human, human nightmare to really... Um, enforce immigration law under those circumstances. Today we are sitting at a moment where we have a net negative migration, and yet if you were to listen to you know, the political rhetoric, you wouldn't know that. So if you were to uh, have a policy prescription for what needs to be done today, what, if anything, should Congress be doing, forgetting all the rhetoric out there? Well, the biggest problem we have is 11 million people out of status. And, and the longer we let this go on, the more problems it, it's going to create. And it's doing us no good. And the overwhelming majority of these people are guilty of immigration infractions, which are civil violations. And they are not criminals in the conventional sense. And so um, uh, for the kids who've grown up in the United States, the so-called dreamers, the DACA kids, and there are about 800,000 people who have registered for DACA, I just give them a green card and say get on with your lives in the only country you really know and then for others for the adults that came in you could have a, a program of legalization where you if you want to integrate them you say you take an English language class you learn some US history pay taxes stay out of trouble and if you really want to punish them because they broke a law give them a fine at the end 
I mean, they just broke, broke a civil law. It's like a parking ticket. So you fine them, make them pay their debt to society, and then let them get along and get on with their lives. That's the only real, realistic thing to do. Border enforcement is ridiculous. We, we want to spend $25 billion on a wall when the flow is negative. You can't reduce a flow that's already negative with a border wall. Uh, the only people that are showing up at the border now are Central Americans who are fleeing conditions that we bear a large measure of responsibility for creating. And we were able to integrate three, 400,000 Indo-Chinese in the 70s and 80s without a great deal of difficulty. And we're talking really tens of thousands of people from Central America. They're small countries. Salvador is under 5 million people. Uh, Honduras is like six or seven. I think Guatemala is the biggest at 12 or 13. These are not huge populations. And then the potential outflow is just not that big. And if we just stepped up to the plate and said, look, we really messed up the region and we'll, we have some obligation here, moral obligation, to take some of these people in, it, w it would be easy to do. Yeah. You run the Mexican Migration project. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what brought you to this subject? I started studying Spanish in third grade, so I have a background in Spanish language, and I took uh, courses 7 through 12, and then when I went to college, I didn't want to forget, so I took a course every, every uh, quarter in college, and if you do that for four years, you get a major in Spanish, whether you want one or not. Uh, and uh, so I had a background in, in anthropology as well as Spanish, and I met an anthropologist in 1978 who'd spent a year doing field work in Mexico and collected really remarkably accurate information from the, in the town that he was living in. And so I got the idea of combining survey research methods with anthropological techniques in the field to gather reliable data on Mexico-US migration, which was just beginning to heat up. This was right after um, uh, the article published in Reader's Digest, uh, which was 76. Um, so uh, I thought, um, this is going to be an important demographic process, and we can't measure it using the standard techniques, and I think I can develop a way to measure it, doing surveys in specific towns, collecting representative data from those communities, broadening the base of generalization over here, every year building more and more communities into the database and, and building a cumulative uh, file over time. So at this point, um, this started, we did the pilot survey in 1982, uh, and then we applied. For, I applied for a grant in 1987 that really launched the Mexican Migration Project on an annual basis. And so we've been collecting new data every year in Mexico since 1987, and we've surveyed 161 different communities at this point. And how do you actually conduct the surveys? We um, try to build in variety uh, 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 in the communities we pick. So we we. Um, as, as Mexico has changed, as the migration process has changed geographically, new origin communities have come online. So the traditional heartland for migration in the United States is the states of northwestern Mexico. Five states account, uh, account for about half of all migrants historically, uh, more than half. Uh, Jalisco, Michoacan, Guanajuato, Zacatecas, and San Luis Potosí, those five states, uh, in and around Guadalajara. And then uh, as NAFTA changed the political economy of Mexico, new states emerged. So Veracruz started coming. Oaxaca started sending uh, more and more communities from different parts of Mexico. And we spread out. And we, and we go in, pick a we pick like four to six communities in a state, 
we go in and um, do a complete census of the town so we get an address list of the town or if we're in an urban neighborhood, an urban area, we pick a neighborhood and block it off and, and create a list of addresses. Then we randomly sample, go to the go to the household and try to interview the household head or some reasonable informant, and we get information about everybody who's ever been to the United States, their first and last trips, where they went, what they did, what their legal status was. Household heads and spouses give us a complete life history of their occupations, their education, their their marriage, their births, uh, and their border crossing. It's uh, fully available, free online, downloadable. We currently have close to 4,900 data users registered. Uh, it's, to my knowledge, the largest and most accurate database on both documented and undocumented migration from Mexico. Um, uh, given our success in Mexico, and this has been going on for more than 30 years now, uh, we ex we've also launched efforts in other countries in Latin America and created the Latin American Migration Project. And we've done surveys in Central America, South America, the Caribbean. Uh, to, Mexico is a real special case. Uh, not, you know, until recently, 99.9% .9 of the migrants went to the United States. More recently, Canada's gotten into the act, and there's Mexican flows into Canada now, but it's still 98%, 97% to the U.S. Uh, so my, my final question is, um, in your uh, you know now three-plus decades of study of Mexican migration, what is a fact or a story that has surprised you the most that you don't get to talk about a lot? Well, what's really impressed me is the power of narrative to structure people's thinking. And uh, it's become more and more difficult for me as not simply a social scientist, but a public intellectual, to try to um, uh, get some facts, information, some accurate understanding of what's really going on on the ground in migration when there's so much misinformation and disinformation being pumped into the public sphere. And, um, the media environment has really changed in, in the course of my 30 years. Um, back in the early 1980s, uh, the broadcast media were controlled and there was a fairness doctrine. You just couldn't go off, couldn't make stuff up on TV and, and present it as news. But that's gone. And then since the internet's come on and, and so many trolls and, 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 and people with access to grind are are infiltrating and pumping out all kinds of stories that are inaccurate and wrong, uh, it's very difficult for someone like me. I'm, I'm privileged, right? I'm a Princeton professor. I have a podium of respectability, but there's just so much noise out there. And it's very difficult to break through, especially when you've got the President of the United States arguing that Mexicans are, have these terrible crime rates. They're rapists and criminals. And in fact, Immigrant neighborhoods have lower crime rates than native neighborhoods. Immigrants are less likely to commit crimes. Immigrant neighborhoods are safer than neighbor, uh, native neighborhoods. Uh, uh, all these beliefs are rooted in complete misunderstandings and misapprehensions that are deliberately put in people's heads by actors who would rather have a lot of Americans mad at brown people from south of the border than guys in New York who are rejigging the political economy so that they make all the money. Well, I hope more people will visit your website and explore your research and the database so that they can get access to those stories and the facts rather than the uh, news that we're all inundated with. Yeah, I take seriously my public responsibilities since it's an NIH-funded project. It's taxpayer money. 
I try to, I've always tried to take the research that I do that's relevant to public issues and make it available as widely as possible to the public. Great. Well, thank you for joining us. Sure. It's always a pleasure to work for the American Philosophical Society. Thanks for listening to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. You can find more information about this episode, including archival collections related to its topics, on the Society's website at www.amphilsoc.org. Great Talks is produced by Abigail Shelton and Joseph DeLulo. Sound design and audio production is provided by Greenhouse Media. Our theme music is New England Triptych, composed by William Schumann and recorded by the president's own U.S. Marine Band. Your host is Dr. Patrick Spiro, and I'm David Spunt. <laughs>